You are listening to the In Focus Church podcast with Pastor Brent Gerard. In Focus Church is a multi ethnic, multi generational church in Evans, Georgia, with a mission to love God, love people, and reach the world. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you are listening, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at In Focus Church. We hope this message encourages you and leaves you feeling challenged to see God's kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. One thing that doesn't change, no matter what year it is, is my loathing of losing things. If you're like me, you hate losing things. It's frustrating, it's irritating, it's maddening, particularly like your keys. Like, you know, you ever walked around your house going, I always put my keys here, where are my keys? And that always was actually not the last time because you're the one that put them somewhere else because nobody else is touching your keys. So it's always on you, which is the maddening part about it. Or whether it's your wallet or I lost my contacts before, my glasses, my jackets when I was much younger. That was a thing that I would lose all the time. And what we would do to mitigate that is growing up a long time ago is we'd take a Sharpie and we'd write our name and our phone number in our belongings, hoping that somebody would find it if it was lost, that had some sort of moral ethical backbone and just call that phone number on a rotary phone and ask you if you had lost a denim jacket or not. This never happened to me. I'm just saying if I had lost a denim jacket. As a matter of fact, I still have my denim jacket in my office that I had in high school that my father wrote in a Sharpie, Brent Lee Gerard, 706-738-3677. It might have been 404 at that time. I also remember one time being on the lake with two of my friends, and I uh, happened to lean over the edge while the boat was moving, and my Ray-Bans went off of my head into the water, and we couldn't turn around fast enough to get them before they started sinking all the way to the bottom of the middle of the lake. Now, being Christians and my other friends being Christians, we'd heard about Elisha praying for the axe head to rise to the top of the water, so we decided we would see if that would work. So we began to pray that my sunglasses would rise to the top of the water, and you know what? They didn't. Yes, we didn't have enough faith. But when you lose something like that's way more valuable than your sunglasses or your wallet, you realize that the value of whatever it is that you lost is what makes the pain that much more acute. The more valuable it is, the more painful when you lose it. The reality that you may never get it back, the more painful that you've lost it. Whether it's a family heirloom, maybe an engagement ring, some sort of possession that you had. Could be your physical health, could be your emotional or mental health. Maybe all your possessions through bankruptcy or some sort of tragedy or catastrophic natural disaster or accident. What about a child? I think most parents have experienced the sudden terror of realizing they don't know where their child is. And it's an awful feeling. Some of y'all don't know where your child is every Sunday morning, but you find them eventually. And the reality is, is when we lose something valuable to us, there's this sense of hopelessness because we'll never get it back. Knowing you can't get something back that you've lost causes you to be 
hopeless. And along those lines, here's what I would say. I would say that there is a collective hopelessness in our world because of something priceless that we've all lost and we can't get it back or at least not in the ways that we think we can. So we try and we fail and we become hopeless because we've lost something valuable. What I mean is that all of us live in the aftermath of having lost the most valuable possession that we've ever had. I'm talking about holiness and an unhindered relational intimacy with God. We're in week two in our series Set Apart where we're looking at the biblical view of holiness. And as we start off 2024, that's what we're doing right now, that we're believing this year, as I have always said at the beginning of the year, we're believing this year can be the greatest year ever, which it can and it should be if we're growing in Christ's likeness, becoming closer to him and closer to the day that we will see him face to face. But in order for that to happen, we need a vision for living holy lives unto God if that's going to be a realization. Last week we talked about seeing God as holy and why that's important and how it affects us that God is holy and that he's called us to be holy. But today I want us to look at the moment where holiness was lost for humanity. The moment that we lost something of infinite value and couldn't get it back. If you have your Bible, I want you to turn with me to the very first book, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Genesis chapter 3. Verse 1 through 8. This is going to be our text this morning. It's probably one of the most well-known stories in the biblical narrative. And as well, as probably one of the most misread, misinterpreted, misunderstood at times. Genesis chapter 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, we may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. For context's sake, we need to know that up to this point in the biblical story, there had been no mention of sin, brokenness, or anything unholy in all of God's creation. As a matter of fact, everything that had been said about God's creation up to this point was that it was good. God would make something and it would say, and God would say that it was good. Or later on in Genesis said that everything was very good. God saw it and it was very good. However, from Genesis 1 and 2 and then to chapter 4 onward, something drastically changed. Something was terribly different. And what we see is that that something was good and now it was no longer good. The question is, how did we get from a very good creation to murder, wickedness, pride, and all kinds of depravity and unholiness, things that we still see and experience in this world today? And the answer is found in Genesis 3. It gives us the context for the rest of Genesis and all of human history up to this point. 
The story from our text this morning is what is known as, in most headings in your Bible, as the fall. Although it's a familiar story, as I said, to to a lot of people. If you grew up in the church, it's certainly a familiar story. If we can take a little bit of time today, dig into the text a little bit, I believe we can notice some details of the story that can shape our lives and reveal just how great a loss we've experienced. Just how great a loss we've experienced. As we unpack these passages of Scripture, we're going to see that sin has affected our ability to relate to a holy God. As I said, we mentioned last week that God is holy. Just a powerful word of who he is. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And in order for us to relate to a holy God, we had to have that holy, unhindered intimacy with him before sin. And so to better understand what we lost in the fall, we're going to look at this passage of scripture together. We're also going to see how the enemy continues to bring about loss in our lives because his desire is that you would all lose in this thing called life. Let's start with verse 1. Now the serpent was made more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. Let's stop right there. I want you to read the text with me for what it says. First of all, the serpent is part of the created order. It says, made by God, but not equal to God. In Revelation, we've learned that this serpent is actually the devil. But in this text, as we read it for what it is, we know him only as a crafty creature, a serpent. Scripture says that he's crafty, that Hebrew means cunning or shrewd in a deceptive, deceiving nature, and he plans to deceive Eve. That is his intention. He has deceptive intentions, and we see that from what he says. He said to the woman, did God really say, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? This statement right here implies that the serpent knows what God's command was in Genesis 2, aware of it, and knowing what God has said, he wants to make sure that he questions God's word. He knows what God has said, so now we see that his true motive is to question the word of God. That's how the enemy works. That's why, how he's always worked. That's how he's always going to approach us because he cannot do anything but lie. The scripture says that that is his native tongue, that all he does is lie. So what he's going to do is he comes to us with elaborate lies or half-truths, if you will, even subtle lies at times in order to cause us to question God's word. Sow seeds of doubt in our our minds. He is, the scripture says, the author of confusion. So what happens when he sows those seeds of doubt is we might know the word of God. We might know what God says about us, but all of a sudden we're like, well, I'm a little bit confused now. Maybe that's not what God meant about me. He's the author of confusion. He wants to lie to us so that we doubt God's word. Verse two, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees in the garden. But God did say, you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it or you will die. Verse 4, you will not certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Something I think we overlook is that the command concerning the tree was given to Adam, not Eve. 
So whatever she knows about the tree, we can infer, has been told to her by Adam. Consequently, Eve adds something not found in God's command in Genesis chapter 2, 17. We understand this as we might tell somebody a story, and then they go tell somebody the story that you told them, and they go tell somebody the story that they was told to them, and everything is, for, in general, the same story, but there's some things that are missing because it's not verbatim what was said. We understand this. Here's the same concept. And she's already added something about not touching, but here's something else she does. She doesn't repeat exactly what God said in Genesis 2.17, which was, you will certainly die. Or some translations say, you will surely die. If you eat from this, you will certainly die. It's a subtle change, but she changes it to what? You will die. God said, you will certainly die. Eve says, you will die. That doesn't seem like that big of a deal. I mean, they're both, it's, it's dead. They're dying's the end. But if I told you, hey, you know what? I've got this propane gas tank in my backyard and I need some help with it while I'm out of town. So my house doesn't get too cold. So could you go out there and I'm making this up. So don't worry, that's not gonna happen. And could you go out there and you just turn it one click to the right? Just one click to the right, because here's the problem. It's, it's, it's faulty, and it's not put in right, and if you turn it more than one click to the right, the whole thing's going to explode. And then that person says, well, I can't do that, so I'm going to go tell somebody else, see if they can do it. And they say, well, did he give any instructions? He said, yeah. He said, just turn it to the right. No, I didn't. I said, turn it one click to the right. If you just keep turning it to the right, boom. All right, I just woke some of y'all up, but... It's over. And here's the thing. It's subtle. But he said, you will surely, you will certainly die. And if we understand the syntax of the words and the sentences, you notice the serpent twists the words to have a different meaning altogether. God said, you will certainly die. It's an absolute infinitive, meaning that it is inevitable. It's going to happen. You're going to die. But Eve made a statement of immediacy. You will die. Eat, die. What the serpent says can be paraphrased like this. Don't think that death is such an immediate threat. I mean, it might happen one day, but not in this moment. See, delayed consequences are the stuff unholy moments are made of. Oh, yeah, you could get 86 months interest-free, same as cash. But after those 86 months are up, or however long you have it lasting out, the bill comes due. And if you're paying 28% interest on something that you didn't pay interest on for 86 months, what about this? Hey, listen, what's about 84 drinks tonight? You're not going to have a feel the hangover until tomorrow. What's the big deal? It's delayed consequences. Oh yeah, don't think that death is such an immediate threat. The big deal is this, God is holy. And his words are not half-truths or partially true. They are completely and utterly true and what we are to live by. And the serpent is deceiving by casting doubt on the verity of God's words. That is who our enemy is. Always has been, always will be. He is the deceiver. And what does the deceiver do? He deceives. The tactics of the serpent are still the same today. Question God's word. 
Is that what he really says? Minimize the cost of disobedience. Well, that's not really an immediate threat. And paint a false reality of freedom apart from God. He just knows you'll be just like him. See, we can see these strategies that the devil used against our first parents, and he uses the same exact ones on you and I today. He's not creative, but he is crafty. And he's been doing it a long time, so he's got a lot of experience at being crafty and being deceptive. The deceiver is going to deceive. That's what he does. How? Number one, by undermining the word of God. He's going to undermine the word of God. And you know how he undermines the word of God? Did God really say? Is that what he really said? Well, now I'm confused. He's the author of confusion. The question challenged God's truthfulness. Did God really say? This question challenges the truthfulness of God. The truth is what truly sets us free. So knowing God's word, church, is vital to protecting us from the lies of the enemy because he knows God's word. He knows it well enough to twist it and to subtly change it by changing the syntax of a sentence, if you will, and causing all of this to be what it is. He knows it, he's going to undermine it, he's going to twist it. And if you don't know it, guess who's going to win that battle? Can you have questions about the Word of God? Absolutely. Can you have doubts about the Word of God? Sure, you will. But if our questions don't eventually lead us to trust and faith in the goodness of God, they will lead to doubt. And if we doubt God's word is true and that he is good for long enough, we'll inevitably disobey God to our own peril. So he'll undermine the word of God. Secondly, he'll minimize the cost of disobedience. You'll not certainly die. This statement challenged God's authority. As the creator, especially his authority to execute righteous judgment. Here's what the enemy is going to do. The enemy is going to deny the reality of divine judgment ever coming. It's, never, it's, it's just not going to happen. The enemy always will minimize the cost of disobedience, not that big of a deal, while denying there will ever be any divine judgment. God is love. It's not going to matter anyway. I mean, you may die, but you're not going to die right now and not before you enjoy the moment. I mean, isn't that what we're here for? You ever notice how the enemy loves to make you live for the moment? That's what the enemy loves. He loves to make you live for the moment. It's a pit bull mentality. And not like the pit bull, the animal. I'm talking about pit bull, the artist with Christina Aguilera. You put them together. They have that song, right? I'm going to live for the moment a little bit older. I'm just dating myself. We're going to live for this moment. Oh, let's don't think about tomorrow. We're going to live for this moment. And it's the mentality of the enemy that you would live for the moment, from moment to moment, until you one day look at your life and you wonder, how did I end up here? Moment by moment. Living for that moment. And what God wants us to do is God wants us to live with our eyes on eternity. God wants us to live thinking about how do my actions affect my life and the lives of those around me beyond this moment? What are the implications of the impact and the consequences of what I am doing at this moment? What are the echoes into eternity from the decision that I'm making in this moment? How is what I'm doing right now glorifying God in this moment? Number three, he's going to attack the character of God. For God knows that's what the enemy says. For God knows your eyes are going to be open. This statement challenged God's goodness. God is good. And the enemy's now challenging the goodness, the character of God. 
The enemy implies that God is a jealous tyrant who doesn't want you to have any fun, who doesn't want you to have all the good things in life that he has as God, and that you can be just like him. He also paints another false reality, and that is somehow that we're going to have freedom apart from God. Oh, you could just be free of him. God's holding back from you. He knows what will really happen when you eat this good fruit. You're going to be like him. This is good stuff, man. Just enjoy it in this moment. And Scripture tells us this is true. Sin is pleasurable. It doesn't say sin is awful and and you hate it. If we hated it so much, we wouldn't do it. Sin is pleasurable for a moment. So you can live moment by moment. But you won't live in obedience to a holy God. And you'll think that God is holding back on you because the enemy has attacked his character, that he's good, and he has good plans for your life. Here's where I was first intrigued by something I had not really thought about as I was reading the Scripture. And I want you to understand that as you continue to read the Scripture, you continue to grow in the Scriptures. I'm 53 years old, and I continue to read the Word of God and see things that I've not seen before. God begins to reveal things that I've not noticed before. That is the living, active Word of God. You're never going to exhaust all that God can reveal to you in his word. But here's where I was intrigued. First of all, when you link the serpent's two statements together from verse 4 and verse 5, you will certainly not die of those. When you put those two together, did God say it was never really God's intention to put them to death is what he's saying. It was like he was saying, oh, he only said that to kind of deter you, to discourage you from acquiring the godlike qualities of that tree. In effect, the serpent suggests that there's nothing to worry about. God's overreacting. Ever had that friend growing up in your life? And if you didn't have that friend, you probably were that friend. It was like, oh, don't worry about your parents. Oh, they're not. What are they going to do to you? Oh, none of y'all ever heard that before? Y'all, y'all too holy? Nobody ever said that to y'all before? Man, I had all kinds of friends like that. Oh, oh what's your dad going to do? Kill me? And here's the thing that I see, that they're given a choice, and in effect, the serpent's suggesting that the choice is, is, hey, God's trying to hold out on you, and he's not really that good. He just doesn't want you to be like him. So I have a question this morning. Is the tree good, or is the tree bad? Don't answer. I say the tree's good, because everything that God created was Good. So if the tree's not bad and it's good, and I also don't believe it's a divine test, as if somehow God put this tree right in the middle of the garden to be this temptation to see if they would fail or not, because the Scripture tells us that God doesn't do that. That's not his character. He doesn't tempt us to sin. So since it's not this divine repression test, then what is going on? And here's what I believe. Here's what commentators believe. Logically, it seems to be an issue of timing. There are plenty of good things in life that God has for us, but there's also God's perfect timing for these good things that God has for us. Like, for example, driving. Now, when I was 16, well, actually when I was 15, I thought I should have been driving. When I was 16, I was driving. Now that I'm much older, I don't think anybody 16 should be driving. Sorry if you're 15, 16, or whatever. It's okay. Every generation has thought that about whatever generation is now 16. But the reality is 16 is great and and you're driving and I love the fact that most of my kids are driving and it's like they can go do their own things and they don't like dinner. I'm like, well, there's a car. You can go get your own food somewhere else with your own money. Driving's great. Driving's good. But not if you're a toddler. 
See, there's still God's timing. One day, but not yet. You're only three. You're not going to drive yet. Sex is a wonderful creation of God given to us to enjoy, but it's only truly good as God intended at the proper, perfect timing of God within the context of marriage. See, I believe it's more in keeping with the character of God that the tree would be used in the future. It wasn't bad, but it was going to be used when the time was right, when the first couple would be to a place of maturity where they could handle whatever it is God was going to do with it, where they could eat from that tree. And one could compare this temptation to the temptation of Christ when Satan offered him all the kingdoms of the world. Remember that? He's in the desert. He's fasting. Satan offers him all the kingdoms of the world if Jesus would bow down to him in Luke chapter 4. Well, there was nothing wrong with Christ ruling all the kingdoms of this world. It was his destiny. However, the temptation involved bypassing the God-ordained process and timing, taking something that's not yours yet through deviant or disobedient means. See, a good thing at the wrong time ends up not being very good at all. It actually ends up being very destructive. So let's trust the goodness of God in giving us good things because he's a good father and scripture says every good thing that you have every good and perfect thing comes from the father of lights comes down from our father in heaven so but we don't only trust him to give us good things we also trust his timing to know when we can handle it see i think there's so many things in life that we we are rightly wanting to have and they're good we're just not willing to wait on god to give it to us when it's the good time Verse 6, when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. Now the story turns for the worse. Eve considers what she once knew was restricted, and the text highlights the positive attributes of the tree, and it had these adjectives to describe the tree, right? What are the adjectives in the Scripture that describe the tree? Good, delightful, and desirable. That's the adjectives. Because nobody's going to go after nasty, jacked up, and gross. Oh, that, that's nasty. Maybe I'll take some of that. Nobody says that. It's good. It's desirable. It's delightful. And she sees that. But she never noticed those attributes before. It reminds me of the scripture that says, do not awaken love until the proper time, the right time, the time and the goodness of God. Here's what happens. She trusted what she saw and what she desired above what God said and God's desires. Whenever we trust what we see and desire over God's word and what he says and his desires for us, you can be assured it's going to lead you to a place of temptation and then sin. And not only did Eve sin, but she also passed it on to her husband and he sinned. Then the eyes, verse 7, of both of them were open and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. Their eyes were opened to the point that they recognized something that they had always been. And that's naked. There was innocence lost. And if I go back to the initial point where I'm saying that there's some type of maturing that Adam and Eve is gonna, are going to go through in God's timing, that this tree isn't bad, that it's something that he will do later on, when they, something good that they can have at the right time. If we go through that progression, then we think about the fact that they were young, going back to the initial point about timing and maturity. Who has innocence and no real concept of being naked in this life? Little children. 
They'll run straight out into the store in their diaper, and you can't tell them anything else. They don't care. They don't know. There's innocence there. So this also shows why the serpent was not entirely dishonest about the fact that their eyes would be open in verse 5. Their eyes were opened. It just wasn't when and how God wanted them to be opened. Satan doesn't always approach us with outright lies. Can I tell you that? He's going to come with half-truths, little half-truths that cause us to entertain something that is forbidden till we begin to see it in a way that we shouldn't and we begin to desire it in a way that we shouldn't. Our eyes begin to see things we haven't seen before. It's called the lust of the eyes, which then lead to the lust of the flesh where we say, I've got to have that now. I can't wait for God's timing. Then we begin to entertain that which God said is off limits. At that point, the well-known progression of temptation, sin, and death takes place as the book of James outlines clearly because temptation is not a sin. We're all going to be tempted. And if you feel bad about the fact that you're tempted, then you're going to spend a lot of your life feeling bad. Temptation isn't the problem. Each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Verse 15, then after desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. If you think about it, there are a lot of things that happened exactly like the serpent said. Like the devil said this was going to happen is exactly what happened. They had a newfound knowledge, check which indeed gave them maturity, check, that they weren't ready for, wasn't God's timing, gave them independence, check, autonomy, check, that would allow them to be described in some ways as like God in that regard. Temptation is most effective when it dangles something before us that can easily be interpreted as good. Right? I mean, like I said a moment ago, something that's really bad, that's not really a temptation for the most part. That's, if it is, that's, that's low-hanging fruit. That's really bad. I think I'll do that. No, it's something that we think, deceived, believe is actually good and looks kind of good. That's why Scripture says that the enemy masquerades around like an angel of light. But this autonomy and this freedom that we gathered by sin were really bondage and captivity. As believers, we cannot mistake independence for freedom. I'll say that again in our context because sometimes it's hard to separate those two. As believers, we cannot mistake independence for freedom. C.S. Lewis said, there's a parent's love for a child that acts in order to eliminate the child's need for the parent. God's love, in contrast, is not optimized in his becoming superfluous, but in our becoming dependent on him in continually maturing ways. See, that's where God was going to lead them, to be even more dependent upon him in more maturing ways. God offered Adam and Eve the privilege of freedom and the joy of dependence. And with God, they go hand in hand. Our society treats them as an oxymoron and labels God some sort of megalomaniac tyrant. In rejecting dependence on God, though in no way escaping from it, people choose a far more costly dependency. When we choose to be independent from God, we now choose a dependency on ourselves or a substance or another person in an unhealthy relationship or just stuff. You see, when we seek autonomy and freedom and power apart from God, we're only forging new chains for ourselves. 
It's a hallmark of our society that personal freedom and the right to liberty are values above all others, that which we should die for. All the ideologies, all the utopian promises that have marked this century have proven utterly bankrupt. Americans have achieved the modernism presented as life's greatest shining purpose, individual autonomy, and the freedom to do whatever the heck I want to do. We wouldn't say it like that. We would just say, the freedom to do whatever I choose. Yet this has not produced the promised freedom that was supposed to come with it. Instead, it's led to the loss of community. It's led to the loss of civility. It's caused hatred and division. It's caused citizens to hate each other, to shoot each other. It's caused abject poverty and homelessness. It's caused a a great division of wealth and poverty. It's caused other people to live behind gated communities because they think it's going to somehow protect them. What we have discovered is that we cannot live with the chaos that inevitably results from the freedom of choice divorced from God and his understanding of ethics and morality. doesn't work. We lost a lot because of sin. If we understand what we lost, we first have to know what we had, right? If you never had something, then you, you don't care if you lost it. If we understand what we had, and you just have to go back to Genesis 1 and 2 and just begin to read through all that we had, that God had made us in his image, in his likeness, that we had this unhindered relationship and intimacy with him. We walked and talked with God as if uh, he was a friend, that he created us to rule over creation and things would be subdued by us. We were commissioned to be fruitful and multiply and all of those things, all of that's the stuff that we had. We lost it because we wanted to be our own God. We had a need to be our own God, and it changed everything. It's not God who changed. It's humanity that changed because God is unchanging. He remains the same. He always saw them in their nakedness. He still called out to them. He still walked with them even when they sinned. We lost because of sin. I want you to sit in the gravity because that is the collective hopelessness that our world feels apart from Christ. We lost We lost our connection with God, and we now experience separation. We lost our right standing with God, and we're now children of wrath, Scripture says. I don't have time to read all of the Scripture references, but I'll give them to you if you want. We lost our purpose, and we now go our own way. We lost our provision, and we now sweat for our existence. We lost our confidence, and we now experience shame. We lost our connection with others, and now we experience broken relationships. We lost our awareness of how terrible sin actually is, and we now attempt to justify our sin or blame somebody else. I love what Spurgeon says. There's not one person, man or woman, who fully knows the evil of sin. Men who have lived underground all their lives do not know how dark the mine is, nor can they know it until they stand in the blaze of a summer's noon. This is one of the most deplorable results of sin. It injures us most by taking from us the capacity to know how much we're injured. Oh, you demon sin. You do not only poison us, but make us imagine our poison to be medicine. You defile us and make us think ourselves the more beautiful. You slay us and make us dream that we are enjoying life. Moment by moment. This is bad, bad. Bad news. We live in this reality. 
However, that's what makes the good news of the gospel so good. I mean, you could feel just the weight of what we lost. And if I was living under that hopelessness, how awful that would be. But to know that the gospel is the good news that Christ has come to set us free from that. Here's the good news. After talking about all that was lost, if you look at verse 8, all the things that were lost, the one thing that was not lost because of sin was God's pursuit of fallen humanity. God has never stopped, never will stop pursuing those that are lost. Verse 8, then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Here's what I want you to know, my friends. God pursues the guilty. He doesn't pursue the innocent. God pursues the guilty because none of us are innocent. Interestingly, God's eyes were not the ones who were opened. It was Adam and Eve's eyes that were opened. Their shame was not a result of God seeing them. It was a result of them seeing themselves with sin in the picture. God still pursued them, even with. And I want you to notice that God pursued them, came after them while they were hiding in the cool of the day. I love that scripture. I love that phrase, that turn of phrase, because there's a few implications that we need to realize because ultimately God is still pursuing the guilty. And if that's you today, I want you to know he's pursuing you. But I want you to also know that God is patient with the guilty. Scripture's very clear that he doesn't want any to perish. That's why he's long-suffering. He's patient. He could have come in the dark of night, Scripture could have said, or the heat of the mid-afternoon, or God went after them in the frigidness of the early morning. But that's not what the Bible says. It says, in the cool of the day, peacefully, lovingly, asking where they were. Where are you? See, sometimes I think we read that and we're like, where are you? Why are you hiding? That's not God. The fact that God did not come to question his sinful creatures till the cool of the day should teach us the greatness of his patience. And it should also teach us to be patient with others as God has been patient to us. Has God been patient with you? Then we should be patient and extend that same grace to others. The third thing that I see is that God cares about the guilty. The reason that he pursues the guilty, the reason that he's patient with the guilty, isn't because of some divine compulsion. It's because he cares about you. He loves you. And because he cares, he's pursuing us. And, he, and though he did come in the cool of the day because he was patient, he also didn't wait forever, right? Which displays that he does care. He has every right to leave them alone actually forever, to, to just suffer their consequences forever. But instead of making them wait all night long without him, he shows up. Could you imagine trying to sleep that night, wondering what was going to happen when God showed up. There's no sleep that night. There's just restlessness. You all know as well as I do that the fear of the unknown is worse than the reality most of the time. Like, if you're like me, that text, the text that none of us like to get, at least I hate it, it like triggers me. There's like some issue. So don't ever send me this text. It's not even funny. Don't even think about it. Can we talk? When? Well, maybe sometime next week. No! Because I'll think about what we're going to talk about for the next seven days, and I'm going to send my, spin myself into some sort of depression and anxiety. No, can we talk? No, we can talk right now. All right, thank you. I feel a lot better. And now you know what not to send me. Unless you, after you say, can we talk, you qualify what we're talking about. 
I just want to talk about this. It's all good. It's all good. And, and, and don't lie to me about it's all good and then tell me something bad. So God could have left Adam and Eve in the suspense through the whole night because suspense is worse than death. We seem to feel a thousand deaths while we're kept in suspense of one. But instead, he came to them because he cares about them in the cool of the day. He cares for the guilty. No matter what you may have gone through, no matter what you might feel like you're hiding from or hiding from God right now, I want you to know that you're not hiding from him. He's pursuing you. He's patient with you. And he cares about you. He loves you. And no matter what, you will have to encounter him eventually because God is going to come to all of us. He will encounter all of us now or later. And when we finally hear his voice calling out to us and we recognize that we're the one that's hiding, we're the one that's in shame, I hope you're going to respond in such a way that you say, God, I want you in my life. I want you to be Lord of my life. For when you do, you will come to the greatest joy-filled realization that though we may have lost much through sin, we have gained so much more in Christ. If I could say this, what we've lost was a lot, but what we've gained is more. We have gained through Christ. We've gained Christ. And when we gain Christ, we have gained everything. Gratefully, the fall of mankind and the innocence lost is not the end of the story. Because if you skip down to verse 21, and I'm grateful that it's not the end of the story, we see that the God who is pursuing, the God who is patient, the God who cares, is the God who makes provision for us by covering Adam and Eve. Verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife, and he clothed them. See, in Genesis 3, 7, Adam and Eve attempted to cover themselves with fig leaves. Not comfortable, probably not very effective. If you've ever seen a fig leaf, you know what I'm talking about. If you don't know what I'm talking about, you got a fig leaf, try it out this afternoon. Dad, go put some clothes on. Like, that's not going to work. It's not going to cover. It's not comfortable. But God clothed them by making garments of skin crafted from a dead animal. Blood was shed, a a skin was, was peeled back, and they covered Adam and Eve, and it covered their sin. This was a foreshadowing of how God would ultimately heal all of humanity through the shredded skin and the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior. He makes provision. He covers us. And in our fallen state, just like Adam and Eve, we're going to try to create our own coverings to cover up what we feel shameful about or fear or brokenness. We're going to put on masks and make everybody think that we're okay or we're doing what's right. And we're trying to do this own covering with something that's uncomfortable and completely inadequate. And God knows that. So he's made a way for us. God had to do for us what we could not do for ourselves. Now, everything that's lost because of sin can be restored in Christ. John Stott says in the cross of Christ, the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God, while the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. Man puts himself where only God deserves to be. God puts himself where only man deserves to be. I'm so grateful for that. I want to close today by scripturally recounting all that we've gained in Christ Really, this is just going to be kind of a fire hydrant moment of being washed with the word of God as we have gained so much more in Christ than we lost in Adam. And Scripture says that as well. That if by the sin of one man this much happened, then how much more by the sacrifice of the one Jesus Christ, Corinthians says. What did we gain? Here's what we gained with the scriptural reference to support it. Jesus restores our connection to God. 
This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. 1 John 4. Jesus restores our right standing with God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him, Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5. Jesus restores our purpose Brothers and sisters, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it. But one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Philippians 3. Jesus restores God's provision for us. Verse 19 of Philippians 4. And my God will supply all your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Jesus restores our confidence before God. Hebrews, therefore, brothers and sisters, since we've confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is, his body. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, Hebrews 10. And finally, Jesus restores our broken relationships and they devoted themselves the church to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers and all who believed were together and had all things in common what we lost was unbelievable but Christ came to redeem us from our sins and restore to us what was lost so that we could have an intimate abundant and eternal relationship with God the one we were created to have in the first place and so that we could have functioning loving forgiving patient relationships with one another the ones we were created to have in the first place the good news is that life death And the resurrection of Jesus Christ is of such an efficacious quality that the past, present, or imagined future, good or bad, are not forgotten, but they cease to have any power over the present reality of our lives. If you are prone to worry about tomorrow, you need the gospel. If you are tending to fear circumstances or people, you need the gospel. If you are paralyzed by regret or plagued by guilt or fear, you need the gospel. Only the gospel of Jesus Christ can free us from all these things and anything else that would rob us from our freedom in Christ and our dependence upon God that go hand in hand. You cannot be independent from God and live in the freedom of Christ. The freedom of Christ causes us to be more dependent upon God and less dependent upon ourselves. Church, this is the call. This is the gospel call to any who do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior. And it's a reminder to all of us who have received him as such that what we lost was great, but what we've gained in Christ is far greater. But only when we understand what we lost. My hope and my prayer for us in 2024 is that we would continue to see the abundance of God, the peace of God, and the transformed lives that God brings through the power of the gospel by adding to this church those that were once lost now being found by the one who is seeking them. The one who's pursuing them because he's patient and because he cares. 
All we have to do is fast forward to the stories of the lost coin and the lost sheep and the lost son to know that this is the heart of God as he is the one that pursues all of those things that are lost. I want this church to grow for the kingdom of God. I want it to grow because the lost are being found. Amen? Just like God found you, he has many others to find and to fill the seats that are here. Family, friends, coworkers, people we don't know, but God's going to make family. And I'm so grateful that we get to be a part of that. Let's pray right now. Heavenly Father, I'm asking you in this moment, before we leave this place, with every head bowed and every eye closed, for those of you who know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that you would recommit even this morning, God, that we are going to put our hope and our trust in you, that we believe that you're a good God. We're not going to doubt your word. We're not going to believe the lies of the enemy. We're not going to fall for the same tactics that, that we've often felt fallen for before. But Lord, right now we're just saying, God, we want to believe you, trust you, walk with you, and live for you, for your glory and our good. And there's others of you in this room, you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior. You're just kind of hanging on the fringes, showing up every now and then, or, or maybe this is your first time and, and you didn't know why you showed up, but I'm telling you the Holy Spirit drew you to this place for this moment, not to live by the moment, but to live for eternity and to live for the moment that God has for you, which is to surrender your heart and your life to Jesus Christ, admitting that you are separated from him because of the sin, because of the fall, and now Jesus has made a way for you to be with him now and forever through the sacrifice of his son. All we do is we believe that he is the son of God. We confess our sin and our need for a savior and we repent and turn away from that old life and walk with him to a new destiny that he has for us, a new purpose that he has for us, new relationships that he has for us. The feeling of guilt and fear we wiped away and replaced with freedom and joy knowing Jesus as savior and Lord. That's you today. I pray in a moment that you will come down and you'll speak to one of our prayer team members and say, I want to give my life to Jesus today. I want a new start and a new life, and it can be found in Christ today, my friends. Thank you for listening to the In Focus Church podcast with Pastor Brent Gerard. In Focus Church is a multi-ethnic, multi-generational church in Evans, Georgia, with a mission to love God, love people, and reach the world. Be sure to like, subscribe, and leave a rating wherever you are listening, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok at InFocus Church.